0: Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries, with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Before we dive into our study of another church in Revelation chapter 2, I just wanted to make a couple comments for context. This study is an informal Bible study and we're actually talking around a meal or right after a meal. So there's a lot of background noise. And I have to admit that the meal probably slows me up a little bit uh, with a full belly trying to communicate. So it's a little bit different than a preaching format or an interview format. But I hope you enjoy the content anyway. So uh, with that said, just if you hear this kind of noise and background and, and so forth, uh, that's what's going on. Thanks for your patience. And I hope you enjoy it. We might call this passage in Revelation 3, 1 through 6, Christ's message to the church of Sardis. We might call it um, Hope for a Dying Church. Because he says things here about them being dead, but not all of them anyway. We'll go into it here. Smyrna, another of the seven churches that we've been looking at. 33 miles southeast of Thyatira and uh, one thing interesting about the city of Sardis is that it was on a hillside uh, making it a difficult place to conquer and yet uh, a couple at least a couple conquerors through the ages managed to find a a path and conquer the city. Uh, Cyrus in 549 BC and Antiochus in 218 BC. So I think we all know um, organizations that have a reputation and look busy and look purposeful and yet really have lost sight of their real purpose. Um, If I were to say to you, Yale, Harvard, Princeton, you all know what I'm talking about. But did you know that they all started as theological schools? and, and now you wouldn't go there for theological training. <clears> or <throat> the YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association. It's not called that anymore, it's just called YMCA. And it's mostly just a recreational organization now, Whereas it used to be a place for Christian people to gather. And so a lot of these places, they, they have a lot of activity, a lot of busyness, a lot of money, but are they useful or are they dead organizations? spiritually speaking. Well, this is what Jesus says to the church at Sardis and to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These things says he who has the spirit, the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. This reference to seven spirits and seven stars goes back to chapter one like each of the letters do. They throw us back to the original vision in chapter one. The seven spirits could be Angelic spirits that minister before God or ministering spirits to humans. It's not really clear, even in Jesus' reference to chapter one, what the seven spirits refer to. Since the seven is a number of perfection, some have suggested that the seven spirits refer to the fullness of, of God's spirit. Seven stars, however, are interpreted for us in chapter one, in which says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches meaning the messengers to the church, which could be the pastor or an angel. And again, there's no strong conclusion either way. So he goes on in chapter three, verse one, to um, have a complaint against them. He says, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Now, Christ knows their works, in other words he knows what they're doing their busyness they have a name that they're alive the the idea of a name usually has the idea of a a, a reputation if you have a good name you have a good reputation it's used consistently that way throughout the old and new testaments somebody's name represents who they are and their reputation so they had a reputation that they're alive and they're evidently got a lot of works going on but spiritually, they're dead, he says. But you are dead. Of course, dead doesn't mean non-existent. Dead is used in a number of different ways in the Bible. It never means non-existent. It, it probably means here, as it does in many places in the Bible, useless or unprofitable. And so as a church, he's saying, you have a reputation, you're busy, but you're really useless. Wonder if we could think of any reputable organizations like that, that would meet that description. So that's the complaint, but but it's not a hopeless situation. He has hope for them, so he offers them some counsel here in verse two. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. So he knows their works, but they're not perfect before God in the sense that they're not fully acceptable by God, maybe because they're done from the wrong motives. Maybe they've lost their motives doing the same things just by rote or by tradition, but not from the heart. Whatever it is, they're not good enough for God's approval. And so he tells them to be watchful. Uh, In fact, watchfulness is mentioned twice in this, to this church, also in verse three. And it's, it's the, it's the most frequent command in the New Testament is to be watchful. And that might have a special significance to this church in Sardis because they were taken, conquered by surprise. Being, being on this uh, very steep uh, mountainside, they thought they were secure. But as I said, Cyrus and Antiochus, both in past centuries, had conquered them and defeated them by finding a way to them, surprising them and overtaking them. So Jesus' words to be watchful may recall to them their defeat at the hands of their enemies because they weren't being careful, they weren't watching. And <clears throat> strengthen the things that remain. This is interesting statement. We don't know exactly what it means, but um, the idea of strengthening what they have they might have in mind a great earthquake that took place in 17 AD, 17. And um, archeologists have found a big 30 foot section of wall that was 10 feet thick and it had collapsed. And So it could be that Christ was using that imagery of repairing the repair work that has to be done with the remains after an earthquake to tell them that, hey, you've got enough in you that's good to build upon. And so strengthen the things that remain. Now, the things that remain, that phrase could be translated, the rest. Um, and, he, and that could refer to people. So, in other words, strengthen the rest, those who are not useless, those who are not dead, those who are still, still have a flame, um, strengthen them, uh, light that fire, fan that flame, is what he could be saying. The things that remain... Um, this remnant. He mentions in chapter 2 in verse 24 the same phrase, now I say to you and to the rest in Thyatira. So there it's talking about people in chapter 2. So there's still hope for them even though their works are not perfect. If they're watchful and they build on what little they have, they can be restored I think is the message there. And here's He kind of gives them a process of what they can do, uh, beginning in verse three. He says, remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. So what he wants them to do is begin by remembering how they were when they first believed, received the message and heard the message. I'm certain that that probably their first hearing of the Gospel generated excitement in their lives, commitment in their lives, all the things, you know, that happened to us when we first discovered uh, God's love in Christ. And so he wants them to remember that those are meaningful times and hold fast to it. Don't, don't, don't slack up in it. Um, and repent. Or change your mind about the way you the direction that you're going. So stick to what you know, and if you've departed from it, repent or change your mind about that and get back to what you know is, is correct and right. I think what the problem was uh, with the church is that they had slowly lost their spiritual emphasis and allowed busyness and other works whatever they were maybe traditions to go on without the real spiritual motive behind it well he also said to them that <clears throat> he will come upon them as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you now you know that that recalls a number of passages in the Bible where Jesus talks about his return like a thief and that always means that it's going to be a surprise unpredicted visit and, uh, and so here he could be he could be talking about what they had learned about in the rapture in Paul's teaching which I'm sure they had access to. Um, he could be talking to them not only he, he could be talking to them about coming to them in the rapture of the church and surprising them that way which could happen at any moment here today. Or he could be talking about coming to them as a thief in discipline. In other words, since they're going astray, he could suddenly come upon them in some kind of severe discipline that they that would surprise them. I don't have a strong preference either way. Um, the point is, is that they, they need to be ready and need to be watching at all times because they don't know when Jesus is going to act, return, or discipline, or whatever. And you do not you will not know what hour I come upon you. So they will be in the dark when it comes to um, Jesus appearing. I think that, the, again, Jesus might be playing on their memory of how they were conquered in the past <clears throat> by not being watchful and being surprised like a thief. These enemies came and conquered the city of Sardis. And so he's telling them to keep keep, keep watch and be more diligent than that. In verse 4, he gives them a condemnation commendation um, he gives them a little praise um, but not that much <clears throat> Excuse me. this is the uh, less praise that any of the seven churches gets except for Laodicea which doesn't get any so he gives them a little praise and verse 4 you have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy so there's a, a few people evidently who are faithful who have avoided sin and avoided false doctrine and because of that they've proven themselves worthy of a reward and that reward that he says is that uh, since they haven't defiled their garments doctrinally or or morally they shall walk with me in white <clears throat> for they are worthy now the idea of uh, worthiness shows that this is probably not talking about salvation their salvation walking with him in white is not uh salvation because they're worthy and we know that nobody's worthy of salvation because salvation is by grace that we don't deserve and that it's not by our works that make us worthy of it and walking in white as if we are clothed those who who are faithful are clothed in white speaks, I think, of that reward. There's a number of places we could we could find that, like in um, chapter 611. I'm going to flip there real quick. Because in chapter 611, he talks about uh, in the tribulation period, those who faithfully endure the tribulation. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were were completed. So those who died faithfully as martyrs in the tribulation period are given a special white garment. And then at the very end of the book of Revelation, in chapter 19, in verse 8, we have another reference to garments, and it's clearly used there with the idea of a reward. <clears throat> and so um, it says uh, at, the, at the coming of Christ, and to her it was given to be arrayed in fine linen, linen clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So, the wife, referring to the church, is clothed in clean white linen, which is a reward of the righteous acts of the saint—not Not not the righteousness that God gives us, but the righteous deeds that we've done are rewarded. So, when he talks about, um, then, back in chapter 3, When he talks in chapter 3 about walking with him in white, for they are worthy, I think he's talking to believers, the few that are in the church, that are doing well. And he's indicating that there's a reward for them. A closeness, walk with me, indicates an intimacy with Jesus Christ. Not everybody gets to walk with him. And then in verses 5 and 6, a promise. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who overcomes, which is how each of the letters addresses those who have been faithful in their particular trials, their overcomers. I don't believe this refers to all believers. Some take that interpretation, but I don't because the rewards seem to be compensation or recompense uh, for their faithfulness, a payment, and salvation's never a payment. So I have trouble fitting that view in here. Because they are overcomers, and they've overcome some difficulty, they're rewarded. Here, he talks about being clothed in white garments. So the garments are mentioned again. Just like in 198. they are a reward, the righteous acts of the saints. Now, the, <clears throat> the difficult one is the second one, he says. I will not blot out his name from the Book of Life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. I will not blot out his name from the Book of Life. There's a number of books in the in this Bible that we read about. The, there's one Book of Life in the Old Testament that refers basically to human life, to being among the living. Um, there's a book that's opened up at the great white throne, another one, for example, where all unsaved people are listed and their deeds are listed. And so they're judged in the great white, at the great white throne and thrown into the lake of fire, punished according to their deeds. <laughs> There's also what's referred to in um, chapter 20 as the book of life. And what does it mean then when he says, I will not blot out his name from the book of life? Now, uh, his name referring to the one who overcomes, the one who's been faithful, the one who's uh, proven worthy of reward. But one thing we should notice is when he says, I will not blot out his name, that's a double, double negative. And the Greek language has a way of emphasizing something with a double negative, like we would say, no way is, am I gonna blot you out of the book of life. No way is he gonna be blotted out, rather than just say, he's not gonna be blotted out. So it's it's an emphasis there. And I think that emphasis indicates that Jesus is trying to give an assurance to some in the church that they will never ever be blotted out from the book of life. He's not saying that it's possible they would be. He's simply saying that they never will be. And um, some have called this uh, figure of speech a litotes, Okay, you know when you're doing Bible study, you have all these different figures of speech like metaphor, simile, uh, synecdoche, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Latotes well, is one you don't hear about very much, but it's a, it's a minimal way of saying something to emphasize it, the opposite almost. Like um, if I if I were driving here this morning and I got in a car accident, my car flipped over and uh, and I had to leave it at a repair shop and I had just enough time to call an Uber to pick me up and get me here. And and I was late. And you said, Oh, Charlie, you're late. I said, Yeah, I had a little trouble on the way. You see, that's my way of saying, I had a lot of trouble on the way. <laughs> um, another example is in Matthew chapter ten, forty-one. Uh, let me see if I can get that real quick. Just to show you an example of how this figure of speech can be used, <clears throat> Matthew chapter 10:41. It came to pass. Oh, 41. Uh, Jesus speaking, he who receives me receives him. He, rec- he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And then, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And I think verse 42 is what I wanted to look at, not 41. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of water, cold water in the name of a disciple, Assuredly, I say to you, he, by, he shall by no means lose his reward. So, again, he's using a negative and minimalizing it to emphasize the opposite, that if somebody gives a cup of cold water, they will certainly be rewarded. No way they're going to lose their reward. They're going to be rewarded. Okay, so that's an example of a litotes and uh, as, be, as a figure of speech being used. Another, another one in the book of Acts. I'll turn to that real quickly and read that for you if you want me to. Acts chapter 20, verse 12. And this is about um, a fellow who dies named Eutychus. And um, he fell out of the window and he died. And Paul put himself over him and healed him. And it says in verse 12 And they brought the young man in alive. And they they were not a little comforter. Not a little comfort. Using the negative to emphasize the positive. They were really comforted a lot. Not a little comforted. They were really comforted a lot. So that's how that figure speech works. And I think that's the best way to understand Revelation chapter three in verse five is that Paul is stating a negative and minimalizing it to emphasize the positive. I will not lock out your name his name from the book of life. In other words, I will, he, I will never blot out his name from the book of life. Never that, n- not that it can be, but it never will be. It absolutely will be there. And the book of life, most people believe, is those who have believed in Christ as their Savior and are uh, destined for eternal life. Okay. Uh, there's another way of looking at it that uh, some commentators take, and kind of because of what he says next, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So, confessing we could go back to the Gospels for this, too, and look up verses where Jesus said, you know, if you deny me before man, I'll deny you before my Father. If you confess me before man, I'll confess you before my Father. But to confess us before the Father is a way of Jesus saying, I'll give you honor before God. I'll, I'll speak up for you. Um, I'll extol your, your virtues and your faithfulness when we when I'm before the Father. <clears throat> And so what, he, what some people think he's saying, and they relate this to the book of life, is he's saying, I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father. Remember the word name meant, means reputation. <clears throat> so they understand this to say, I will not blot out his reputation from the book of life, but I'll, I'll embellish it with good things that he's done. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So, some would say that the book of life not only contains our name, but name being our reputation, it contains some footnotes about our reputation. And, and God is saying, I will not take that person, ruin that person's reputation, because they've been faithful. And in fact, I'll, I'll confess it, or, or amplify it, um, draw attention to confess it, before the Father and before those angels. So however you want to look at verse five, it's not saying that a person can lose their salvation. There are other ways to interpret that. And uh, he's speaking to those who are, who are faithful and have overcome trials. And so he's not threatening them with the possibility of losing their salvation by being removed from the book of life. He's saying that in no way will you ever be removed from the book of life, or that your name will never be tarnished in the book of life. <clears throat> And then, of course, he ends it uh, in verse 6 with the way he so often ends the letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen up. This is what Jesus is speaking, so pay careful attention to it. If you have an ear, a hearing ear, then listen carefully to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So you would think he says... um, listen to what the Spirit says to the church since he's speaking to one church in Sardis. But when he says to the churches, it indicates to us that the message is broader than one church in Sardis but could apply to all the churches at that time and I think includes all the churches of today too as well because we will exhibit some of the things that the church in Sardis does. We'll see some being faithful in the midst of a lot of activity and churches that have gone astray, groups that have gone astray, lost their purpose and lost their way. And uh, and yet some will be faithful. Now remember uh, we said that these churches, some people have taken these churches, each of the seven churches, and identified them with a period of history. I don't take that interpretation. But those that do, I like to interpret history by the Bible. I don't like to interpret the Bible by history. So. But those that do take that historical view of these letters would say that this letter might compare the church in the period of the Protestant Reformation, when there was a lot of good works and doctrine coming out, um, but it kind of, and, and there were a few who remained faithful, but it kind of degenerated into a lot of arguing and disunity and disorganization. And so the few names might refer to the reformers like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli. They remained faithful, even though everything else was confused and fighting around them. So I don't know. You know, it's it's always a danger to interpret the Bible by history. So I'm just letting you know what some others might say. Um, But here's where I think uh, we can maybe think in a practical way about our own situations. Um, We should never judge a church or a Christian organization, for that matter, by its past reputation. I mentioned Harvard, Yale, Princeton, YMCA. They had great reputations in their day and they had a great purpose when they started out and a vision to reach people. But today, you don't go to Harvard to learn evangelism. You don't go to YMCA to learn evangelism. They'd probably kick you out if you did it there. Um, Don't judge a church by its reputation. I remember visiting Amsterdam with my wife years ago and seeing all these beautiful churches because Christianity used to be vibrant there in Europe and now they're museums and they're closed on Sunday. So uh, they've turned what used to be vibrant churches into museums because people just don't go anymore. Uh, So a lot of activity, but not necessarily a lot of spirituality. Uh, Don't judge, organizations, or churches, by their past reputation. Um, Some have noted that there's usually a pattern to an organization. There's the uh, different steps. First of all, there's the birth of an organization, which is usually a response to a need. We need something, so we start an organization to meet that need. And then it grows, the organization grows, and we could be talking about a church or any organization. And there's a lot of excitement in that group. And then there reaches, on stage three, a stage of acceptance, where, hey, we now have a reputation, we've established our stuff, we have status in the community. But if we're not careful, step four can become a step of demise, where the organization calcifies, it kind of hardens, and, and doesn't have the excitement and vision that it used to have. And then, of course, the final step is death, where it actually just becomes useless, devoid of its original purpose and spirituality. Um, Someone else listed the symptoms of a dying church. I'll just read them to you. The symptoms of a dying church uh, is a church that's more concerned with programs than people. In other words, they're more concerned with organization than being an organism, a living thing. Uh, The second is that they're more concerned with preservation than proclamation. In other words, this church would want to protect what we have instead of going out and doing evangelism and proclaiming. Third thing they said is they are more concerned with form than function. That means more concerned with the structures, the traditions, and how we do things than what actually gets done emphasis of form over function, whereas uh, a healthy church would ask, well, why are we doing this? Well, because we've always done it. Well, that wouldn't be a good answer. Um, A a dying church is more concerned with the past and the future, with traditions rather than uh, the original vision, and a dying church is more concerned with reputation than responsibility. They would rather be popular than be right. And then uh, the sixth one is listed as, uh, a dying church is more concerned with conformity than change. Um, a dying church wants to conform to the culture around it rather than change the culture around it. In other words, it's as if they give up trying um, and just want to fit in and be acceptable. but they don't like change. Someone said, on the tombstone of every dead church is the phrase, we never tried that before. So any organization needs to constantly uh, adapt to the culture um, and constantly evaluate where they are and what they're doing uh, on the basis of what's going on around them and the basis of what God said. But. It's easy to lose uh, a good reputation and fall into just a useless reputation. As I think uh, a lot of churches actually have done today. I don't want to be judgmental about them, but I see a lot of churches doing a lot of big shows and performances and a lot of entertainment, but I I wonder exactly what's being done to help people. Uh, Another way we can apply this is don't judge a church by its activities. Um, Because busyness doesn't mean spiritual life. Activity does not equal spiritual life. A lot of churches are into social programs, feeding the neighborhoods, the communities, entertaining people, putting on big shows or building bigger and nicer buildings, and that's their emphasis. Those things are all good and necessary sometimes, but that's their emphasis. And there's a lot of activity. There's always a project, a building project going on or a special event coming up. But that doesn't mean they're a spiritual church, just because they have a lot of entertainment or a lot of building programs. And um, a third application, it takes constant watchfulness to stay spiritually alive. It takes constant watchfulness to stay spiritually alive. And that's why he repeats that idea of watchfulness to the church in Sardis. And it's the most frequent command in the New Testament to be watchful. Um, You know, I have to. It's a good idea to always check your tires before you get in your car. Um, I noticed I had a slow leak in my front left truck tire one morning. I just haven't been paying attention to it, and now it's it was down quite a bit. And I had to air it up. And I have a, a another uh, mower at home where a, a tire keeps the battery keeps going dead on it. And I have to keep a maintenance charger on it. You know what I'm talking about? Little it's a little thing you plug in and it maintains the battery. It's like a battery charger, but it's just a mini, mini thing. It just keeps the battery charge up. If I don't put that in there, that battery just slowly dies to the point where, which is all recent experience, it dies totally and you can't charge it back up. And so every year I forget to put this thing on and I have to go out and buy a new battery for my lawnmower. I just did that. I've got it hooked up now. Hopefully don't forget to take it off, to keep it on. So it takes constant watchfulness. Um, you know, Sardis, the city of Sardis wasn't conquered head-on in military combat. They were conquered by sneakiness when the enemies found a, a path up the cliff to, to conquer them. And, and how do you think Satan works? Does he work out in the open, in open conflict with us, or does he work behind the scenes to corrupt attitudes and people's emotions and actions and, and, and generate anger or, or jealousy or whatever Um, Satan is subtle Um, he can dress himself as an angel of light he can look like a minister of righteousness uh, we're warned Uh, but someone said rightly that the devil's boots don't creak I like that one the devil's boots don't creak he sneaks up on us so that command to be watchful very relevant very important and so it is very um, emphasized in the New Testament, and then never forget your vision. Another application: Why, why do we exist in what we're doing? What strengths do we have that we can build on? Um, we want, if we want to uh, continue to go forward, uh, how will we grow from here? Um, Sometimes growth can get messy. You know, when you're meeting with a bunch of teenagers here, and I'm sure they don't all come spick and span and using the perfect language and so forth. (laughs) Things can get messy, but um, you know, somebody once said, I'd rather try to tame a volcano than resurrect mud. And I've always remembered that. So a little bit of messiness and disorganization can be a good thing. At least there's activity there. It just needs to be trained harnessed but if there's nothing, if it's just mud it's hard to resurrect mud, you can't do that so better to have the activity and then uh, finally I think that we saw from this letter that good works and faithfulness will be rewarded they will be rewarded first of all, we will never be removed from the book of life that we have that assurance as our reward and if you take a further interpretation when Jesus confesses the names of those who are faithful before the Father, will have um, accolades next to our name, perhaps in the Book of Life, Um, a tribute to what we've done good and what we've done right, as kind of a reward that will be memorialized forever. So there is hope for our dying church, as uh, Jesus is trying to give them a little hope even though he calls them a dead church. There's still a little bit there to work with, and he wants them to build on it. And we would be wise to do the same evaluation of our lives and see what it is we want to build on to get to where we're going, what was our original vision for life, for ministry, for, for uh, organization, for church, or even at your work you could apply this. So there you go. Church of Sardis. Hope for a dying church.